It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. So we spent some time in uh, an earlier session discussing the first um, three to four sutras of uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Figured we'd move on and continue exploring the Yoga Sutras. Now, the Yoga Sutras, remember, are an important text for Kriya Yoga practice. And they are essentially a manual for what is happening and the theory and the principles and what you are meant to do. And it's very direct. There's 196, 200 specific aphorisms. And the purpose of them is to share the information as directly as possible. So there's not a whole lot of, uh, there's not a whole lot of fluff in the Yoga Sutras. Uh, there's the expectation that you're just getting right down to business and that you are prepared for the process. So we have to remember that when we come to the study of the Yoga Sutras, that's what we're coming to. We're coming to a very direct process, a very direct philosophy. Now, we'll review just for the sake of what they are, uh, reviewing what they are, the first sutras. And sutra number one, Atta Yoga Nushasanam means now the instruction of yoga. Now the instruction of yoga. Now you are ready to begin. Sutra number two, Yoga Sutta Vritti Nirodaha means that yoga is the process of ending the definitions in the field of consciousness, the definitions in the field of consciousness. Tada drashtu svarupe vastanam. Then the abidance of the seer or the eye stays within its own nature. So we have the definition of yoga here that by ending the processes, ending the definitions in the field of our consciousness, then the seer or the eye abides in its own nature. And this is yoga. Vritti sarupyam itaritra. Otherwise, there is conformity to definitions. I mean, otherwise, you are defining yourself through things. And as we know, all things come and go. So you're essentially setting yourself up for um, misery because if you define yourself through things which come and go, then you are defining yourself through things which die, which means you are defining yourself through death in a way. So those were the sutras that we had already covered. Now, the next series of sutras um, begins the process of explaining all of this. So everything that we've just heard in those first four sutras is really all you need to get the overall understanding 
of what yoga is about. So everything from this point forward is elucidation, clarification, getting into the um, precise understanding of the process. So what is the next sutra? The next sutra essentially describes the definitions. So otherwise there's conformity to definitions. Otherwise, if you're not abiding in yourself, you are outwardly directed and you are defining yourself through concepts, definitions. Vrittaya, panchataya, klishta, kalishta. That means um, the definitions or the vrittis of this field of which we experience, that they are fivefold. There are five of them. They are either pain causing or obstructing or non obstructing, not pain causing. So to get our minds fully around this, <clears throat> we have to really shift gears from the thought or the idea that we are a character. Now you think you're Carol, you think you're Larissa, you think you're Sandy, you think you're Stuti, you think you're Teresa. I think I'm Ryan, and that's normal. Everyone on the planet thinks they are who they think they are. Uh, but that is kind of a misperception. Um, you are a field of consciousness. That's why there is this introductory idea that um, by ending the changes and the definitions in the field of consciousness, yoga is experienced. And that what we call vrittis, that these are definitions of the field. They're, they're taking that vast, unimaginable field and they're making it imaginable. It's becoming definable. It now has boundaries. Now, to play a role, yes, it is very useful to think you are Bobby or Dave or Larissa or Linka. Just makes sense. The trouble that we get in is when we believe above all else that we are that role. And the process of yoga is showing us how to release our attachments to that role. So the definitions of the field, that your, the things that define you, they are fivefold and they either obstruct you in your practice of yoga and they are pain causing or they are not obstructing, they are not pain causing. It's pretty straightforward. Now, these definitions, they fall under five categories. Pramana, Viparyaya, Vikalpa, Nidra, Smritaya. They are 
Evaluation, that's number one, evaluation. Misperception, number two. Conceptualization, number three. Sleep and memory. So those are the five those are the five definitions that we experience in consciousness. Evaluation, misperception, conceptualization, sleep, and memory. Now, a common mistake that people make when they start studying this, especially if you tend to have an either-or mentality or black-and-white mentality, that's not going to be useful <laughs> because... Uh, we have spirit and we have nature and they go together. What we're talking about, yes, deals with the idea of spirit. And that is what yoga is doing. It's revealing to us the true nature of spirit. Um, the mistake that many people make is they try in their incarnated life to get rid of things like evaluation, misperception, conceptualization, sleep, and memory. But there's a place for both, meaning we have to play our role. We have to play our role as Dave, Carol, Bobby, Seema, Sarah, while it's there. But while it's there and while we are playing our role, the practice of yoga is to work out, okay, well, in the bigger picture, in the bigger scheme of things, what am I really? So we, we, I would like to encourage you, uh, to try to avoid the black or white either or thinking that it's either spiritual or it's just all nature. And if you do anything related to nature or uh, supporting your, your small sense of self, that that's bad. Your small sense of self is not bad. It just needs to be in its right place related to uh, spiritual development. So evaluation, misperception, conceptualization, sleep, and memory. These are the things that define us. These are the things that we need to become conscious of to see how it's functioning. Because when we become conscious of how these definitions are functioning, um, we can then become aware, are they pain causing, obstructing? Are they getting in the way of our experience of clarity while we play this role? Or are they supportive? Because as far as I can tell, you are able to live a supportive, healthy, spiritual human life. And it's perfectly fine to have that. It all comes down to, again, the bigger picture, knowing that that human life is not the eternal. And when you can know that the human life is not the eternal, you tend to relate to it better on all levels. And that's really what we're aiming for here. Because there's a tendency to, to think that we need to escape from all of this. And this is part of it. <laughs> this is part of it. So after Patanjali describes these definitions, pramana, Evaluation, viparyaya, misperception, vikalpa, conceptualization, nidra, sleep, smritaya, memory. He gives a little more insights into them. Sutra 17.
Kratya Kshanumanaga. <laughs> That's a long one. It's, I don't know if I can do that one right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Pramanani. Yes, that one I don't have quite memorized yet. Pratyaksha, direct perception. Anumana, inference. Agama, testimony. Pramanani, valid means of learning. So a valid means of evaluation. So there is a valid means of evaluation. And those are direct perception, inference, and testimony. Evaluation, the valid means of evaluation, how to evaluate things. What are they? Direct perception means you've seen it yourself. Inference, you have enough information that you can pretty much figure out what's going to happen. So inference is useful. We're going to talk about these things. And testimony. So direct perception is valid means of um, evaluation. Direct perception, that's easy. Someone gives you a chocolate bar and you eat it, and you now, through direct perception, know, know what that chocolate bar tastes like. So paying attention to things like that. Direct perception is very useful. Um, and that is one of the best ways to approach this process. But we can't always have direct perception. For example, if we want to know what it's like to experience consciousness beyond the personality, and we've been so identified with the personality, and our meditations aren't quite giving us that yet, well, direct perception might not be the thing that you can rely upon, but what can you rely upon? Inference, inference, meaning that you can sit down and you can read spiritual texts and you can see the consistency between spiritual teachers and what they say. And you can contemplate the vastness of life and the cycles of nature and all these things. And you can infer a divine or some kind of intelligence there, which has allowed this amazing experience to happen. And and it is an amazing experience, really. Even, that, that's what always uh, struck me, was that if you can stop and you can contemplate what's going on, even when I sit here and I, I think about the things that are in this room that I'm in, this small room, I mean, I have a small office um, in a, a building in town, and I see the statues and I see the pictures and I see the chairs and I see the ring light and all the light coming through. And I, I see the desk and this computer and I, I contemplate and imagine how much went into just making this small amount of stuff that's right here. What went into allowing light to appear in this plastic circle channeled over who knows how many hundreds of miles made from coal or natural gas or solar if you stop and, and really contemplate what went into the production of a pillow on your chair over there and all the lives that had to exist in order for that to be there, it's, it's amazing. So through inference, through paying attention, really, that's kind of the way I interpret inference, paying attention, 
um, you, you can start to get a sense of the vastness of this wholeness of life, even though in your mind, you, you, you don't quite, you don't quite feel like you're, you're really plugging into it the way you would imagine, but you are it. And that's part of the problem is you, you have an imagination of what it's supposed to be like, and that's what gets in the way. <laughs> so um, that's a, that's a concept. So as we get in conceptualization, we'll see that that is something that gets in the way, meaning rather than just seeing what is there, which in and of itself, even in the most mundane of human experiences is often profound. Um, we have these concepts that say, but it should be like this. But why isn't it like that? And what do they do? They get in the way of the direct experience, but we're not there yet. We're still talking about inference. So that's one way that you can begin to use inference as a, a, a valid means of evaluating something or testimony. And this is where it gets a little tricky <clears throat> because it requires trust in someone. And, you know, since the beginning of time, when we've had uh, the invention of priests and people who supposedly had knowledge beyond what we have, we've also had charlatans. We've also had people who are manipulative. We've also had people who are clever and can make you think certain things. So the, the difficulty with testimony is you have to find someone that you can trust their testimony. Uh, I try to surround myself with those people, people that are trustworthy. And, and I don't just meet someone and then automatically trust them. I observe them over a period of time to see, all right, do they say, do they do what they say they're going to do? Do they follow through? Are they punctual? Um, do they tell little white lies or, or do they just not even know that they're telling lies? You know, if they do it every now and then to like embellish a story and you know that they're making stuff up and they know that they're making stuff up and you're just getting into it for the fun of it, that's different. But if they're constantly trying to overblow things or, or um, not, not give a, a, a full true account of something, well, to me, that diminishes my trust in them doesn't mean I won't be their friend. doesn't mean I won't interact with them. I just know that I'm probably not going to rely on their testimony. But there are people in my life that they have been solid. I know what they're good at. I know what they can do. And so if I go to them and I, I ask them a question, they might not be 100% right, but they've been right enough that I'm going to trust their testimony so that I can evaluate it, so that I can infer, try it out myself and see what my direct experience is. So when you find people in your life that you can trust the testimony of, that's a, that's a great, great thing. And luckily, um, Mr. Davis, for me, was always a, a great source of testimony. Um, spiritually speaking, I would listen to what he said. And because I know and what I had observed that he had been as authentic as possible as straightforward as possible, as direct as possible, I began to see that I'm just going to trust what he says. And from what I can tell, that was well-founded. Um, so this is one of the reasons why having a mentor or a teacher is useful. And this is also one of the reasons why it's really a good idea not to have too many. <laughs> 
Um, you know, Yogananda told Mr. Davis not to read anyone else's books for the first year or so uh, while he was in training with Self-Realization Fellowship. And that wasn't to control his mind or anything like that. It was that he wanted uh, Mr. Davis to develop discernment. And Yogananda said, after you've developed discernment, you can read anything and you'll know what's true and what's not true. Um, I don't read very much, as you hear me say all the time, because most of what I've needed, I have found in, in the writings of um, Shriptishwar, Mr. Davis, um, Paramahansa Yogananda. And I've branched out into a few other teachers here and there, but not, not as... Uh, not as though I'm, I'm looking for something more, um, just out of curiosity. And I found a few that I've, I've appreciated, one of them being Ramana Maharshi with a very direct approach. And, and, and it made sense when I read it. And then as I applied it, it created direct experience. And even as the years went on, there were still things I couldn't quite grasp. But because much of what he said did make sense, I knew that the part that didn't make sense to me probably would eventually. So that's the... That's the, the purpose of testimony, really, is that if you meet uh, a teacher or a mentor or a source of information that you trust that, that is reliable, meaning it, it gives good information, and there's parts of it that you don't understand, well, if the lower portion of that pyramid of good information worked out, you can pretty much bet that the rest of it is, too. Uh, it, it's when you start studying and applying information, the testimony of others, and it's hit or miss, some of it works, some of it doesn't work, well, then you might want to question whether it's a great source of testimony, because maybe some of it does, but you're, you're not necessarily going to be able to trust, well, is this higher stuff actually going to work out or not? And then you end up wasting time. So the, the greatest thing that you can do is uh, find a source of, of testimony if you're not able to infer or have direct experience yourself through getting involved, benefiting from testimony, you eventually do develop discernment and the ability for inference and direct perception. And one of the ways that you can do that, and this is something that I've, I've thought about often, you know, how does one find a teacher or a mentor? Uh, you have to know that it's possible for you and you have to trust yourself and your discernment with what you find. Knowing that it's possible for you, trusting your discernment, that will go a long way in accelerating that process. <clears throat> and that's part of the, the inner work that you have to do for yourself. Now, viparyayo mitya jnanam atha drupa katishtam. Viparyaya, misperception. Mitya, mistaken or false, jnanam, knowledge, is not that. I'm going through each word, Sanskrit word, and what, what it can mean. Rupa, appearance, form, pratishtam, foundation. So misperception is mistaken knowledge. That's what it is. Misperception is mistaken knowledge. Founded on an appearance which is not that. And this happens to us all the time. And the common... Um, example that is, that is often given is this idea of you're walking down a path and you see a rope 
It's you know maybe evening time, so there's shadows. You see a rope across the path, and your brain puts together that must be a snake. Well, it's not. It's a rope. But when you think something is a snake, you are set that that is a snake, and you act accordingly. You turn around, you go the other way, or you you go a long ways out of your way to avoid the snake, or you attack the rope. All the while, that's wasted energy, wasted understanding. So misperception is a mistaken knowledge founded on an appearance of what's not true. And this happens to us not just with ropes. You see someone that reminds you of a person that did bad things to you when you were younger. You automatically assume that they do that too. That's misperception and you can't interact with them appropriately. Um, you, and this is the big one for, for yogis. Ultimately, you think you are this body. You think you are this body. You think you are this mind. You think that you are this personality because you don't have clarity. It's, it's your consciousness will say is like dim or dark. So there's shadows there, just like in the evening when you see that rope and you think you are this body, so therefore you do all kinds of stuff that waste your time and waste your energy related to this body. You think you are this body and that's all there is. So you waste all your money and time going to hot yoga classes to look as awesome and be as healthy as you can be because that's all there is. And you could have been using a good bit of that time and those resources in meditation to figure out what you truly are or um, you're, you're, you're unwell, or you have an illness or a sickness, and you are so upset and so sad that you can't concentrate, that you can't meditate. Why? Because you, you think you are this body. Whereas if you knew, bodies get sick all the time. They get sick, they get well, they get sick, they get well, they die, they're born. If you are able to begin to see that, which again goes back to observing nature, which we've talked about previously, then you can be sick and you can still be content and peaceful inside and you can still hold your awareness within because you're not your body. And again, this is one of the, the beautiful lessons from Ramana Maharshi when he was dying of cancer. He knew he wasn't his body. So he didn't mind dying of cancer. Um, he knew that that was just the way things go. But all the while, he was able to stay or remain abiding as the self, which we saw earlier in these sutras as being the important thing. So this, 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 misperce this misperception, this mistaken knowledge, <clears throat> this is often one of the hardest things to shake because, well, when you've been told all your life, and this starts very young, doesn't it? When you're a little kid, you know, in order to make you happy, people give you things. I'll just, just, just give him that. He'll, he'll be quiet. Um, well, what happens? We start to, to imagine and think that external things are what pacifies us. And so we spend the rest of our life grabbing, grabbing, give me this person, give me that job, give me this amount of money, give me that kind of health. We're grabbing, grabbing, outside, outside. <clears throat> and it starts very young. And so, again, uh, this is one of the reasons why in, say, the Bhagavad Gita, there's this reference to being twice born. Uh, twice born is supposed to be a good thing. Twice born refers to 
number one, we're born into a body, physical body, probably unconscious. The second birth is when we become conscious of what is real, of what is true. It doesn't mean, it doesn't have to be, we wake up into this amazing state of self-realization. It's the conscious awareness of, oh, the choices I make, the way I think, that is, that, it's, it's waking up from doing things unconsciously and then trying to work out what is the best thing to do from a conscious perspective. When that happens, that's, that's the, the twice-born part where you wake up to, oh, okay, there's a reason I, I practice the yamas and niyamas. There's a reason I, I work out my inference and my direct perception and, and, and find someone that I can trust with testimony. There's a reason th that's there. It's, it's when you begin to be conscious about why you do what you do. Um, so misperception, mistaken knowledge, this is something that we outgrow as we mature. We benefit from the testimony of others that we trust because for example, if, if Ramana Maharshi is a valid source of, of testimony, which in my experience, he most certainly is, well, when he says things like, you must abide in the heart, you are not the body, that that is the, the biggest problem that you face, you think you are the body, well, then I know whether, even if I, I still feel like, well, I'm still going to take care of my body because, you know, that's crazy to think that I shouldn't, uh, I'm still going to trust that maybe there's something to what he's saying. So then when I'm meditating, I'm going to really, okay, I'm not my body. Well, if I'm not my body, then what am I? And I'm going to really give it my, the full force of my attention because he said it and I trust him. The testimony is proven to be accurate until eventually years go by. And then one day it happens. Huh. I understand that I'm not my body now. A direct experience occurs. And sometimes that happens uh, very quickly and sometimes it's fleeting, but you, you catch glimpses of it. But one day it becomes so clear that you don't have to keep fighting to remember it. You don't have to keep overcoming that definition because you, you've had the experience. Just like I know my hair is brown. No one has to keep telling me that. I don't have to look in the mirror all the time to remind myself my hair is brown. My hair is brown, I get it. That happens. Uh, once you start to move through the mistakes and perception, you see things clearly. It becomes that obvious. It becomes that clear. And that's what this whole process of yoga does. Now, vikalpa. Shabda, jnana, nupati, vastu, shunyo, vikalpa. Shabda, words or language. Jnana knowledge and concepts, anupati, relying, vastu, object, shunya, without, vikalpa, conceptualization. So vikalpa, conceptualization, is without an actual object, and it relies upon the concept of language. So this other definition is simply conceptualization. Conceptualization. That little dialogue in your head that's always going on. Oh, that's a light. That's a bird. I shouldn't do this. That's a statue. I see someone's name here. It's that, that little thing that makes you feel like you have to label everything. Because labeling things, in a sense, for many people, 
makes them feel safe. If you can label something, then you know what it is, but that's a false sense of safety. That's just overlaying an idea. So conceptualization is actually a problem. And so, and this comes up again and again in many other texts, letting go of concepts, letting go of concepts. That is something I would highly encourage you to start trying to do. And you may ask yourself, how did I get here? Um, you, you may ask yourself, how do you let go of concepts? And the way you let go of concepts, the way I have found is you do it gradually. Um, it's sort of like, you know, letting go of your note cards when you're, when you're giving a talk. At first you need your note cards when you're giving a talk. You keep referring to them, but eventually once you've given enough talks, and I'm speaking from experience here because obviously I talk a lot in this realm, that I don't need note cards anymore because I've talked about it so much that it's there. So when I come to do a presentation like this or someone asks me to talk at a church or at a yoga um, teacher training, I don't need any notes because I've done it enough. So whereas before I had the notes and I had to keep looking at them, in time I had to just put them aside for a little bit and do my best. And then if I need them, so wait a minute, let me get my notes and I'd check and I'd look at them again. But eventually it became easy to let go of it. And there's many things in life like that, you know, learning a new piece of music. At first you need the written score, but in time you know it enough that you just have it, you know what to do. So the best way to begin releasing conceptualization that I have found, um, I suppose this is a form of meditation. I was gonna say not really meditation, but just go outside, just go outside somewhere and sit down and commit to whatever you can do. We'll say five to 10 minutes at first, just pick five or 10 minutes and sit down somewhere and just observe. If you live in a city, you just sit on a bench and you see the pigeons come down and you see clouds go across the sky and you see buildings and people come and go. Now in that five to 10 minutes, what you're practicing, what you're aiming to do is to become conscious of how much you label things. Oh, the pigeons just landed. Oh, someone just walked by. There's a cloud there. That building is reflecting the sun into my eyes. You wanna just at first observe how often you have to label something. And by developing that state of consciousness, you are moving into an observational position and then the mind's doing what it's gonna do, but now you are not defined by those concepts. You just see that the mind does that. And then in time, in that five to 10 minute period, and I recommend doing this daily or a couple times a day. You know, many people used to take smoke breaks. Well, don't take a smoke break, take a uh, non-conceptualization break and just go sit somewhere. And eventually you then do your best to avoid, really truly ignore the mind's need to label something then whatever that thing is that you call pigeon lands, all you're doing is observing the movement of this form. And in this situation, I have to use concepts to describe to you what's going on here. But uh, you know what I mean, where, where you can just see it happen instead of saying, that's a pigeon. You just watch it land. Or 
someone walks by rather than, oh, they're pretty, they're ugly, um, they remind me of someone, uh, I wonder what they're doing. You just, you're just observing this, this image, which we can call a body, walking by without labeling it. So really this is a, a process of learning to observe. At first, the mind is gonna to continue to label because that's the nature of the mind. That's what it does. So you gotta start with just letting the mind label all at once, but you move back into an observer, just seeing what the mind's doing. And it becomes interesting. All oh, the mind is labeling these things. And then eventually you start completely aiming to ignore the mind so that you don't even hear it. And the beautiful thing about non-conceptualization is that you start to learn that uh, you're safe even without having to label everything, even without having to know what everything is from the mind standpoint. And that begins to spill over into other areas of life. So I recommend beginning there. And then in time, when you get good at it, uh, you can begin to do it in what I would consider in uh, meditation proper. Because then you're doing the same thing. It's just now you're observing all the images that come into your mind, all the thoughts that pop into your mind. You treat them exactly the same as you treated the pigeon and the person walking by and the sunshine off the building. And you, you end up eventually not taking them so seriously anymore because you see it's just stuff that happens. And eventually you're able to completely let it go and just exist in a thought-free state. So this happens incrementally over time. It is possible. It takes some work. It takes some practice and some skill, but you, it, it does happen. And it's not as hard as, as uh, you would think if you, if you practice it, if you practice it. And, and this is a beautiful, beautiful process because then you understand or can understand uh, discipline a lot better. Because the reason we're not disciplined is because we listen to all that crap in our heads. Oh, I can't do it because of this. Oh, this is going to get in the way. Oh, this is going to be a problem. Well, if you've practiced non-conceptualization, you've learned to release attachment to all those little ideas and thoughts, ideation, then it doesn't matter what your mind says or what pops up in your awareness. You can just do it. And that's when you start to realize that you're actually not your personality. And I think that's a beautiful thing uh, because in my own life, I've experienced that such that, um, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm probably going to do it. Even if I have all these thoughts in my mind saying, oh, well, you don't want to do it, but what about this? But you could be doing this instead. Once you develop the, 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 the release of attachment to concepts, that can go on all day long. And you don't have to listen to it. It reminds me of a friend of mine who has um, three kids and she's a single mom. And that's all she does is take care of her kids. And I remember visiting her once and I was like, what is going on here? There are these kids running around screaming stuff, like tugging on her. And uh, like, it was that way nonstop, but she was as cool as a cucumber. It, 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 she could take, she knew when it was, a, she knew when she needed to pay attention to the kids but at other times it was like they weren't even there. And I thought to myself, how is this even possible? And then it was a, a great experience because I recognized, oh, well, that's what we do. 
you know, the thoughts in our mind, our concepts are like these crazy kids running around demanding our attention all the time when they really don't need it all the time. Sometimes, yes, but not all the time. And just like she learned to be an effective mother while not necessarily being so wrapped up in every little thing her children were doing, we can do that with our minds. Um, so it is possible. And you probably do it in other situations. Um, think about something that you're so good at that it doesn't matter if people are yelling at you or trying to distract you. You can just get in there and do it, you know, because you know what to do and you know what you don't need to listen to. So with conceptualization, this is kind of part of the process. And eventually um, you are able to completely and totally release the need to think. <laughs> you can still think, but it's not a compulsion anymore. It's not something that you, th that you have to do to feel like you are you. Most of us feel that we are who we are because of a, a, a consistent pattern of thoughts. And so that gets in the way of abiding as the self. I could go on and on about these things. And as I was preparing for this little discussion, I, I recognized that this is probably one of the more um, time-consuming parts of the sutras uh, because there's so much that could be said about it. But that's the funny thing, is it, isn't it? You don't really need to say so much. If you, if you just pay attention the first time, apply that, that's what you need. Now the next, the next one, uh, nidra. Abhava, pratya, yalambana, vritir, nidra. So nidra, nidra, sleep. Abhava, absence of non-wakefulness or absence, non-wakefulness. Pratyaya, uh, the immediate arising of thought directed to an object. Alambana, depending on vritti, fluctuation. So sleep is the vritti depending on the immediate arising of thoughts towards non-wakefulness. Now this is a really profound sutra. Many people take it way too literally. And I want to make sure I pronounced it correctly, um, as I think that's important. Abhava pratyaya lambana nidra. Abhava pratyaya lambana nidra. Yes, abhava pratyaya lambana vrittir nidra. There we go. Um, <clears throat> so nidra or sleep is the fluctuation depending on the immediate arising of thought towards non-wakefulness. Now, many people interpret this as you just need to avoid sleep. <laughs> and that's not the way it is. Um, Number one, you can remain present while the body sleeps. Um, I talk about this in um, one of the chapters in the book, 
Kriya Yoga Vichara, Kriya Yoga Vichara, uh, yogic sleep. But again, as I've said before, in order to practice yogic sleep, you have to be good at meditation first, meaning you have to be able to be alert and awake during actual meditation before it's going to work in, in yoga nidra. Too many people think, well, I'm just going to lay down and meditate. Don't do it. Uh, I'm not going to buy it. If you tell me that you're meditating profoundly in, in sleep, <laughs> if you can't do it sitting up straight. Uh, but once you, once you learn how to remain alert and clear and awake during meditation, yes, you can learn to do it during sleep. So on one hand, yoga nidra is really letting the body sleep while you remain awake, while you remain awake. And you have a sense that you're doing that, you know, maybe you are in a relationship and maybe you snore. This has been my experience. And you, your body falls asleep and you start snoring. You have no idea that you're snoring. You have no idea what's going on externally because you're so internalized and you are present. You are aware. You are there. That then the person who you're laying beside as you go to sleep like elbows you or pushes you and says, hey, quit snoring. And you think to yourself, what do you mean snoring? I've, I've just been laying here this whole time. So the body sleeps. So it's not about avoiding sleep. You let the body sleep. There's a reason the body sleeps. It helps to heal the body. It helps the brain replenish itself. There's all kinds of good reasons that you sleep. So there's no reason to avoid sleep. In fact, lack of sleep causes most people a lot of their problems. Um, so you can learn to remain present as the self, not as your personality, not as your body, while you sleep. And of course, that requires that you have already had the experience that you're not your body, that you're not your personality, which is one of the reasons why in meditation, it is often advised, at least at some point, to spend some time imagining that you are completely free in space, that, that there's no boundary, that you're not defined by a body, that you're not defined by anything, that you are completely free. You have to spend some time in meditation really getting into that. Imagine it as best you can until it becomes a real experience for you. Because it's those imaginings which will allow you to feel safe when all of a sudden you have the realization, wow, I'm not my body, versus having the moment of realization and you freak out because you don't have that touchstone that you're used to of the physical form. So it's, it's imagining, it's learning to, to be comfortable in that state. Um, the other side of um, this, this statement, um, that sleep is a vritti depending on the immediate arising of thought towards non-wakefulness. When you are caught up in a state of wanting to escape from things, you are caught up in a state of non-wakefulness. Listen to what I said. When you are caught up in a need to escape from things, you are then caught up in thoughts towards non-wakefulness. So you become unconscious. You're, you may be functioning, you know, think about it. All of, most of us are asleep through the, the majority of our day, aren't we? Because we're not actually awake to what is happening. We're, 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 we're at work, but what are we thinking about? When am I gonna be done working? There's an escape from the present. Um, you're hanging out with someone, you're thinking, oh, how can I get out of here so I can just go to bed? You are not present. Um, you are exercising, but you're thinking, I wish this would be over with. You are not present. 
that is sleep. So this is one of the levels that we're talking about with sleep. So part of, part of the process is that being present with what is happening. Being as present, typing the most mundane email as you are observing the most beautiful flower in your garden. Being present, chopping up those onions as you are savoring the, the final uh, production of that meal. Being present in illness as you are as in health. Because if you are ill, if you are in poor health and all you're thinking about is how you should be healthy again, um, you're not awake because illness is something that's happening. Like you don't have to define it. You don't have to say, oh, I'm ill, I'm so sick. But if your nose is running, well, your nose is running. If you have to get some kind of uh, profound medical treatment, well, you're just getting a profound medical treatment. It's the being there that is the awake part. It's the, I wish I wasn't doing this. I want to be somewhere else. That is sleep. Um, so we have to remember that there are, there are different levels to, or, or different interpretations of these things. And for some people, yes, it's just about getting enough sleep and being alert during the day. That's what they need to do. Or it's about learning to remain aware of, of being an observer while the body sleeps. But more importantly, what contributes to all of that is this idea of avoiding the immediate arising of thought towards non-wakefulness. And what that really means is the immediate arising of thought to something else than what's actually happening. So if I'm going to give you any kind of homework between now and the next time we come together to discuss something like this, it would be to begin observing how often you are wanting something else or that you're thinking, gee, I can't wait to get here or I can't wait until this is over rather than being with what is. The more you can be with what is, uh, the less you'll be asleep. <laughs> so consider this. Now, Anubhuta vishaya sampramosha smritihi. Anubhuta, experienced. Vishaya, objects of sensory experience. Asampramosha, non-escaping, non-stealing. Smriti, active memory, recall, remembering. Smriti, memory. Memory is the non-escaping of experienced objects. Isn't that beautiful how it actually comes out? And you know, um, I don't have a copy of it here, but um, my book, Kriya Yoga, Continuing the Lineage of Enlightenment, has a commentary on the Yoga Sutras. It was based upon studying other people's commentaries, my own experience, studying the Yoga Sutras in Sanskrit and what those terms mean. But I always love going back to the, the real direct wording, uh, how it goes together in Sanskrit. So memory, just listen to this, it's almost like poetry. Memory is the non-escaping of experienced objects. It is the non-escaping of experienced objects. So what is memory? It is attachment to objects that have been experienced in the past. So it's, you're not escaping. Now we have to remember, I was using the term escape 
related to the sutra on sleep as though it's a bad thing. But, you know, you escape the Earth's atmosphere when you are uh, a satellite trying to get in space. So it's just a thing that happens. You have to escape from some things, not in the please get away from me, but it's just you have to escape the inertia of things. So that's in a sense what this terminology of escape is using is when we get caught up in the gravity or the inertia of things from the past, it keeps us again out of the present. So we see here between sleep and memory, those are things which prevent us from being right here. So memory can be a problem. It can be a problem. Remember that these these things can be pain-causing or non-pain-causing or obstructing or non-obstructing. And memory can be a problem when it is holding you attached to objects which aren't useful. Memory can be a benefit when it's pulling you upwards into what we would call sattva or lightness or clarity. For example, uh, the experiences that I have had with uh, my spiritual teacher, he's not alive anymore. But those experiences that I've had with him, I can remember them. And they themselves are uplifting. They carry one further into clarity. So there are certain ways that memory can be used positively. Thanks to many of you. Um, <clears throat> this little book is almost done. Now, this is a, a rough draft. Um, the Essence of Complete Kriya Yoga Practice in the Words of a Kriya Yoga Guru. That's a picture of me with Mr. Davis. Uh, I did a series of lectures with him, not lectures, um, interviews. And this little book, it's just over 100 pages, is the transcription of uh, two of those interviews and, and one lecture that he did for the 2018 Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program at Center for Spiritual Awareness. <clears throat> and just remembering the process of sitting with him, re-reading re these words is uplifting. So that memory, the spiritual memory, if you will, um, helps. So we have to remember that there are, are two sides to many things. For example, conceptualization. Yes, you want to avoid concepts, but for some people who can't just go into a space of utter clarity, they have to use a concept to access it. So if they have an image or a statue of divinity, Ganesh or Jesus or Mother Mary or Shiva, and that, that concept allows them to focus their attention and then it uplifts them, that is a way of using conceptualization, which eventually will free them versus the kind of conceptualization which binds them. So we have to remember that many of these things um, have a non-obstructing or freeing element but there's also an obstructing element. We have to develop the discernment to figure out what that is. And if we don't have the discernment, again, we rely on testimony. Now, the final two sutras. Uh, sutras 12 and 13. Abhyasa Practice, vigilance of awareness. Vairagyabhyam, non-attachment. Tadneroda, of those restricted influences. So the ending of those restricted influences that we've just described occurs, this is how it happens, by practice 
and by non-attachment. It occurs by practice and non-attachment. So again, we're seeing the beauty of, of the Yoga Sutras of how there's been a definition of yoga is the ending of the changes in consciousness. Then the seer abides in its own nature. It abides in itself. Otherwise, you are defining yourself. Otherwise, there is conformity to definitions. And then Patanjali goes on to describe what are those definitions. And after they're defined, he ties it back together again by saying the ending of those definitions, this is how you end them. You end them by practice and by non-attachment. So many, we've discussed a few things that you can practice. The constant practice, remembering of what we've discussed, that is the practice. Non-attachment is learning to give yourself permission to not define yourself by these definitions. To, in meditation, just let go of memory for a little while. Let go of concepts for a little while. Let go of sleep. That's sleep as in I'm nodding off and I can't stay awake. Let go of that. But also let go of the urge to, I want to be doing something else other than sitting here doing nothing. Uh, th these, these types of things, when you, when you can remember and, and contemplate what are the fluctuations and changes, what are the definitions, and you can decide for a certain amount of time, I'm going to do whatever it takes to do my best. Now, it doesn't mean you're always going to be successful, but to do my best to not direct my awareness there, to just abide. And this is the non-attachment which ends those fluctuations, which ends those fluctuations. It's very much like, again, when you have a, a, a young adult who's been attached to their parents all their life, and think, well, I can't go out on my own. I can't accomplish this. But then slowly they, they drive a little further or they get their apartment close to their parents and they start to realize, oh, I'm okay living by myself. And they start to pay their own bills. Oh, look, I can actually take care of myself and I can buy a car and I can get a job. And they start to grow into the sense of, I don't have to be attached to this that I was so attached to previously and I can thrive. So part of the process is letting go of the things that we thought were so important, such as our body, our concepts, and, and, and recognizing that by not defining ourselves through them, we st we're still here. And what is that which is still here? It is the I. It is the self which persists through all changes. And then finally, tatra stital yatno mbyasa. Practice is vigilance in remaining there as the eye, as the seer in one's own nature. So practice is the, the, the 12 or 13 sutras we've just gone through. If you pay attention and, 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 and think them through, because you have to think them through first, get a sense of, all right, what is this about and how can I start applying it to my life? And then you start abiding as that witnessing presence, even if you do it poorly even if you don't really think you're doing it well, but you keep trying, you know that you can do it. That's the important part. You have to know that you can do it. 
then the more that you abide as that witnessing presence, as concepts come and go, as memory comes and goes, as you observe your tendency to non-wakefulness comes and goes, but you see that you still exist, there is something there that still exists that is still present, that is practice as the vigilant abidance as the self. And it is so simple. It doesn't require gimmicks. It doesn't require magic tricks. It doesn't require um, the blessing of some interstellar being from afar. It's just the doing of it. And it's simple. It is so profoundly simple that that's what makes it hard. (laughs) Um, So what I would like to encourage you to do, um, I'm going to post this eventually, hopefully in the next couple of days. But in the meantime, try to remember as best you can what we've discussed, because that process of trying to remember will make it more real to you rather than having to rely on a recording. Uh, But you want to go back and listen to the discussion on the first three or four sutras, combine it with what we've just discussed, and spend some time in study listening, contemplating, okay, this is what I think he meant How can I get a direct experience of that? Or how can I begin to work this out? How can I begin applying this? That is the true spiritual study. That is the true work. It's not just listening. It's not just meditating. It's beginning to work it and embodying and understanding what has been said and bringing it into your direct experience. That is where your your spiritual life is going to ignite And you're going to begin to know what these spiritual teachers know and have talked about. And it will become obvious and easy for you in time. It will become natural. And you'll wonder what the fuss was about all along. And you'll laugh at yourself eventually. But you have to do the work. So between now and the next time we we get together, I want to encourage you to um, contemplate what you've studied. Write things down. Really get into it. Work it out. Um, Get out. Kriya Yoga Continuing Lineage of Enlightenment and and study and contemplate the the first 13 to 14 sutras. Don't go further than that. Stay with that. Really make the most of what you've you've learned there and see what you can call from it. And take your time and and keep moving forward. Um, So thank you for being here again today. And it seems like this is a good uh, thing to do, revisiting the study of the sutras. Many people have already gone through it with the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship course. Also, there is the um, 26-hour downloadable course where I'd gone through the sutras previously, but the repetition of it is very useful. Um, so continue, continue your study, and let's see where it goes. So be well. It was a pleasure to be with you this morning, and um, keep moving forward. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.